0: man. And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're going to be in Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 3. And to piggyback on a couple of the announcements, make sure you grab one of the bulletins on your way in. We're going to keep the announcements in there. We're not going to highlight everything from the front that's going on, so you can look there. But a couple of things I do want to mention is we have our last table for 10 uh, coming up. We've had to cancel a couple this spring, but that's a great opportunity if you're looking. That's the first step to learn more about our church and to learn more about the membership process and Cynthia and I host that, so that one's coming up. Love to have you at that. And I'm really excited about the men's event on May 8th. As we're going to be hosting that, and I can't promise, but uh, I- anytime we host anything, I feel a moral obligation to provide smoked meat, so there might be some of that there. You you, you never know. Just have to show up and find out. And uh, one more announcement. We're going to announce every week until June, but in June and July, to as part of our summer schedule and summer rhythm to help us kind of scale back and give some of our volunteers a break, We're going to ramp down to just one service, so the 930 service will be the only service we have that's an opportunity uh, for us to kind of scale back during the summer, but also opportunity to get to see some people you might not see normally during the year, and we really don't want to just not have that next hour. We want to create space so you can uh, linger and meet one another and just spend time uh, lingering. But we're going to have little cards in your seat every week for the next month, starting in May, to announce that. And so it'll be in the bulletin, but that's coming up this summer as well. Now, as we transition, we're in Ezra and we're doing a series called Out of the Ruins. And I want you to imagine, so this illustration is for our Midwesterners. So for our follower folks from the Midwest, but um, St. Louis now, every, everywhere you live, so if you moved here, you, you came here and you didn't realize all of a sudden now you have to prepare for hurricanes, and so it might create a whole disorientation, but no matter where you live, there is some type of catastrophic danger that's in the background. So it could be hurricanes, could be earthquake, could be tornado, but folks, a lot of folks from St. Louis don't realize the danger they have is danger from earthquakes, so St. Louis sits pretty close to it. Now, I'm not going to say this right, so this is how you know I'm from, not from there, but the New Madrid fault line? Madrid, yep, New Madrid fault line. It's kind of like we have friends who come in from out of town, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're staying in Kissimmee, and I uh, say, got it, know exactly where you are. <laughs> New Madrid fault line, and it sits on this seismic, um, you know, zone. And in 1811 and 1812, there was a series of earthquakes that were so catastrophic, it actually caused the Mississippi River to flow backwards for a number of hours. There is a lake that I've read about, Patrick, maybe you can help me be my on-the-spot fact checker, but a lake that's about 18 miles away from the Mississippi River that didn't exist before that earthquake, and because the Mississippi River flowed backwards, it created this lake. And uh, about 25 years ago, the Army Corps of Engineers thought, you know, they say these things happen every 100 years, and we're about 100 years. You know, we're we're getting close. So they did this exhaustive kind of study on what would happen if that size earthquake happened again right now in St. Louis. If you've ever been to St. Louis, you know, it's this beautiful old kind of architecture. has this red, a lot of the buildings have this red brick that's this unique red that comes from kind of the mud of the Mississippi River. If you've seen the Cardinal Stadium, Bush Stadium, where they play, it's this beautiful uh, stadium. But what they found in their study is that they estimated between 80 and 90% of the buildings in downtown St. Louis if there was an earthquake of that scale, would be disintegrated. Not just fall, disintegrated. And they estimated that there was only one bridge going into and out of the city. Let's see, uh, Manchester Road. The Manchester Road Bridge is the only one that they feel confident would survive the earthquake. Everything else, they're not quite sure. And so could you imagine, I mean, it's kind of like worst case scenario, could you imagine if there was that scale of an earthquake and the entire city just was decimated? And then you'd wait. And let's imagine it's 50 years later, and Ozzie Smith Jr. has risen and he says, we're going to rally uh, all of the Midwesterners from all across the country and we're going to rebuild. St. Louis will rise. And they gather all these people to get together. You go back and- I didn't get that. Could you try again? Hmm. (laughs) Siri's not tracking with this illustration. She doesn't understand. It's a hypothetical. It hasn't actually happened but you imagine the hypothetical that it's all fallen and then 50 years later these people have risen and we're going to rebuild and then you get 50,000 people from all over the country and they come together and then they have support from the federal government that we're going to fund this building project and then they go and then you show up and they're like where do you begin? How do you, how do you start? What's the first thing you start to build? Do you build the arch back? Do you build like City Hall? Do you build Bush Stadium? We got to get the Cardinals home back? Where do you start? And when we come into Ezra chapter 3, that's where we've kind of come to. At the end of chapter 2, you have 50,000 eager and energetic people who've been stirred by God to go back home to go back to Jerusalem and do this great thing where they're going to build the the city of the Lord, the house of the Lord, they're going to build it back. But can you imagine when you think about there's just so much to do. It would just be overwhelming. I mean, the ground is untilled, the city is in ruins, all is everything is out of order. You know, what do you prioritize? What's central? Where do you start? And in these chapters, it really captures both the energy and the excitement of starting something new like that, but also the the terror and the horror and and the challenge. And anytime, you know, you're trying to begin this new work for God, part of the excitement, but the challenge is that there's rarely enough people and rarely enough resources. And in this scenario, in most scenarios, there's threats that abound. And what do you begin with? And it's interesting here, they begin... With worship, worship is where they start. And the big idea for this week is that worship is central to the life with God. And in worship, we're called to look beyond our present difficulties, to look out and look up and to celebrate who Jesus is, what he's done in the past, and look forward to what he's going to do in the future. So when he calls us together in worship, it's supposed to be so much more than just kind of singing some spiritual songs, kind of an uplift or a little um, life pep talk. It's central to our life lived well in God's presence and in God's world. He doesn't want us to be captured by the present and absorbed in the here and now and overwhelmed either by disasters or tragedies or just the activities and responsibilities of life. It's God's gift to us to help us rightly order our priorities in our time and it's a regular reminder of his goodness and his grace and it's central to life lived well both for this life and the next. So in chapter 3 we're going to look at all right what do they do once they all get back to town where do they start? And we're see the first step is they build the altar and then we'll look at right time, right task, second step, they lay the foundation. But let's just read it. So Harrison, Harrison's in the back. I've got the challenge for him. He's going to have to track along with me. So Harrison, we're, we're just going to read it. So you, we, you track along. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, or Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheteliel, and his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God, the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it. And as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the people of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord burnt offerings morning and evening and they kept the feast of booths as is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number and according to the rule as each day required and after that the regular burnt offerings the offering at the new moon and at the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So then they gather, they kind of bring everything together. Then they they wait and then here's the second year in the second month. Once again, they all gather together and then they start to appoint proper leaders. They're together. Now let's pick up the story in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the son of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests, And the Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So I look at these two scenarios, both. We're first going to build the altar, step one, and then we're going to lay the foundation, start the building of the temple. And as we go through it, a couple things I want you to notice. Just first notice the the timing in both both verse one and then verse eight, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns. And then verse eight, now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God, in the second month. Month. Seventh month, second month. Now that doesn't ring any bells to us, but they would have heard it the seventh month. That is the month of the holidays. That's kind of like if we said, all right, we're going to do this during December, during the holidays. So there's a whole cycle of celebrations that happened in the seventh month. The Feast of Booze, the Feast of Weeks, but the key one is this is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So they wait until this time And it's at the right time. Now, notice also in verse one, uh, one of the key themes is at this proper time. So the timing had to be right. But there is this theme over and over that they come together. They gathered as one. It says that translated this way, they gathered as one man. Kind of older translations, you might ring a bell or says they were all together in one accord. It's that same language of gathering, coming together, this assembly it's going to be the exact same phrase that Ezra is going to use when he brings everybody together to hear the law read. It's the same phrase for the disciples and everyone who were gathered together as one in the upper room before Pentecost. It's actually the same word that's used throughout for the church as you gather as one. And then it gets reiterated in verse, uh, down in verse eight, that they all began together. And then in verse 10, they were all Together. And then it says they sang responsively. You could also translate they sang together with one voice. So, this incredible unison that they're coming together as one people with one mission, and they even sing with one voice. They're all together. And then it happens at this certain festival. It says they reestablished the Festival of Booths. So that's the booze. That's a special festival where every year they would celebrate for one week. They would live in tents. Now, you might be the kind of person who thinks that doesn't sound like a celebration to me, living in a tent for a week. But part of the point of the celebration is that you're going to reenact what it was like in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, after the exodus was this special, there's a word I've heard a lot in the last couple of years, the word liminal. Liminal. Have you heard that word? I've never heard it till post-COVID. I don't know if it's one of the COVID effects, but people are using the word liminal. And liminal spaces are in-between spaces. It's where you enter into a space and kind of what was is no longer, but what is hasn't come yet, and you're just kind of in-between. So it's like a liminal space when you've finished one job and you haven't started the new one, or this transitional space. And that's what the Feast of Booze is meant to remind them of, That in some sense, you live in this liminal space. You're you're, you're no longer a slave in Egypt. You've been set free. You've been redeemed. But you haven't come completely home yet. And isn't it interesting that God wanted to establish a yearly celebration to remind ourselves, no matter where we are, this is the in-between time. We've been set free. We've been redeemed. Salvation has begun. It has started now. But what we will be is not yet. We are not home yet. And so this is a perfect time for them to start uh, this rebuilding process. Because the old is gone. But the new hasn't fully come yet. We're in this in between. That's what we celebrate. They celebrated the Feast of Booze. So you might be there. You might know what it feels like where you don't know what's next in your world, your life, but this is a reminder of what you need to do during those times. And then now notice the task, what do they do at that time? They come first to build the altar of the God of Israel. Now I tried to emphasize, did you notice how often offerings was mentioned. It's about nine or 10 times in about three verses. It's burnt offerings to offer the offerings. They come and they want to first step is build the altar. You can think why? Why would that be the first thing? You think even when Abraham first came into the land, the first thing he did as he came into the land at different places, he built altars, places where God is to be worshiped. His name is to be praised, his presence to be entered into. You know, if you like a little reading assignment, here's a fun little reading challenge. Just read through Genesis and just mark every time either Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob build an altar somewhere, (laughs) kind of take a list of all the altars, and then read through Joshua at everywhere they go into the land to take back. You'll see it parallels almost perfectly. They come back to take back the places that are the Lord's. This is a place where he is to be worshiped and his name is honored here. They build an altar and on the altar, the focus here is burnt offerings. Now you read through the kind of the sacrificial system in the end of uh, uh, Exodus and Leviticus, and it can be a little confusing because there's a lot of different sacrifices, but they all fall into one or three, one of three categories. So there's three buckets, and every sacrifice can be dropped in one of those buckets. You have all of the sin offerings sin, guilt, atonement, these are things to pave the penalty of our sin. Then you have all the fellowship offerings. These really are the good ones uh, in the sense of this is where this is the grain offering, the wine offering, and the fellowship offering. The fellowship offering was always the biggest. It's when you sacrifice the bull. And that's the thing you got to the fattened calf and you got to celebrate. That's the barbecue. So you'd have the ones where you would eat, but then you had the, the burnt offerings, the consecration offerings, the whole offerings. Those are the ones where the whole animal was put on the altar and it was completely consumed by fire. And the image is that it is fully dedicated itself to the Lord, 100%, total dedication. And it completely ascends into the presence of the Lord. And one of the things they want to highlight is that this stage, this season, we are going to reestablish the burnt offerings because we are fully dedicating our life to the Lord. This project, this, this energy that we're about to pour in to build back his house, we're fully dedicated to him. But then notice what they want to establish. It's the burnt offerings, and it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, the burnt offerings to the Lord morning and evening. Verse four, as it is written, the daily burnt offerings as every day required. So the very first step to rebuilding this whole community, the whole city, is to get the regular rhythm of worship back into place. And the way God has designed time and worship to work. There were daily sacrifices of burnt offerings that would culminate into the weekly one. The weekly would culminate into the one monthly. And the monthly would culminate into the three yearly festivals. So these are celebrations that God has designed to establish the rhythms of worship. So short burnt offerings daily, morning and evening. And those are short, kind of in this world, it's just a celebrate where you, you, you offer the sacrifice of an animal as a way in the morning to tell the Lord, I dedicate today to you. Today is committed to you. And in the evening, it's a sacrifice of praise and thanks for his gift of that day. And that culminates in the Sabbath. On the seventh day, you devil. Now, I said this in men's Bible study and they teased me. And said, so devil is not the devil you double, I mean, make it twice. So you offer four sacrifices in the morning, and on the Sabbath it becomes eight. You, you, can you hear what I'm saying? Double. You double it, and so the Sabbath is a day where everything is doubled and is dedicated to the Lord. This is now His day, and then that culminates on the new moon when the full moon. We have one whole day of celebration. And then those days of celebration turns into three weeks throughout the year where we have weekly celebrations. And the Lord wants us to establish that rhythm in his land as the very basis of the rhythm of your life and worship. And it's very important. They have to come together, they have to build the altar, and then they have to go back to kind of where they are. And I think in our world, there's, there's two different ways you can misunderstand the rhythms of worship. You can almost like in so many things of life, there's two different ditches and it's so easy to fall into one of the ditches. And so much of the goal of life is stay out of the ditch. Just stay on the road. Don't go into the ditch. But one ditch when it comes to worship in this context, you become too restricted, where you think worship is just what we do when we gather at church, normally in a big church with a stained glass window, and you go there. Or worship is uh, specifically just what we do when we sing, so that's too restrictive. But then you also can be kind of way too open and think, well, I can worship anywhere at any time. Worship is anything I do when I'm smiling and I don't need to go to church. I don't need to gather together with God's people. I can be spiritual, but not religious and not go through those kind of the motions of the the rhythms and the routine. See, both of those are ditches. Stay out of the ditch. You need both of those things. All of life is meant to be worship done into the presence of the living Lord but then he's established rhythms and routines and places for his people to worship and to gather and to <coughs> praise. So you can think about it. If you don't ever worship alone, you're probably in one ditch. If all you ever worship is alone, you're in another ditch and let's stay out of it. Stay, get in the middle. You can even see this in how it celebrates in verse two and three, uh, the altar of the God of Israel. It's God of Israel, this people, He's not just the God of individuals, it's of Israel. But then notice Moses is a man of God. He has a unique, special, powerful, personal relationship with God. Both of those things have to be true. Man, women of God, uh, part of his larger people. So he's going to establish this rhythm, this routine. Uh, A couple other things to notice. True worship, some lessons. True worship is controlled by God's word. So important. They want to, at this very beginning stage, be utterly committed to the word and give God a say in how God is worshipped. I don't know if you endured, but really in the 90s, you know, part of the evangelical Christian world, there was kind of the worship wars were happening all over the place. Happened most places like in the late 80s, early 90s. Our church in Alabama went through it in about 2010. So, you know, we were about 20 years behind. (laughs) And what was so interesting about most of those debates and challenges is what God thinks didn't ever, God didn't ever get a say in the discussion, but like God gets to determine and have a say in how he is to be worshiped. You can even read through this section. and Notice how many times the name of the Lord is said, but it's always, it's either of the Lord or to the Lord. It's the temple, the altar of the Lord. This belongs to the Lord's, it is his. He determines what it is and how it's supposed to operate. It is of the Lord. And then worship is not just of the Lord, it's always to the Lord. It's directed to him. It's to him and of him, he gets a say. You see it, they, they focus on Moses, the man of God in verse two, and then David, the king in verse 10. And, you know, one of the beautiful things when you trace the trajectory of worship throughout the Bible is some of the most important books in the Old Testament are Exodus and Leviticus, where God is establishing the patterns. And then First Chronicles is one of the next most important books because that's where David is then uh, infusing those patterns with song and music. And then Hebrews is probably the next most important book because that tells how Jesus then has transformed those patterns and transformed those songs. So for our worship, we want it to be built on the patterns from Moses, the music that began with David, and then the transformation that Jesus brings that Hebrews lays out. But they're going to establish this is where uh, we learn what worship is. But then notice there's an interesting thread that's running through the whole thing. And I don't quite know how to say this. I've been wrestling with different ways to say it, but do what you can, even when you can't do what you wish. You can still do what you can, even when you can't do what you wish or do what you should, even when you can't do what you would. Or I feel like there's some proverbial wisdom of something like don't let the the ideal or the great be the enemy of the good. And that's what's happening here. Like, you know, you can even see there's a sense of sorrow that this is not as good as the old temple. This is not like we're we're just doing the best we can in the situation that we can. But you can do what you can even when you can't do all that you wish. And you can always set up an altar. There can always be an altar. Even if all the times and the rhythms and everything is in flux and turned upside down. It's kind of like in 1600s in England when the Puritans were um, cast out of their churches and you had the great civil war and they couldn't meet and gather. They talked about setting up family altars. You could still set up an altar in your home. And so you can still do these things. All throughout church history, altars have been set up in living rooms, in tombs, in places uh, when they can't mat- uh, meet. So you can do what you can even when you can't do all that you wish. And then they focus on the burnt offerings, this dedicate, keep the fire burning, keep the dedication. They go to the altar. And if you think if you need your life renewed and refreshed, the place we continually have to look is continually look to the altar. I was reading a sermon this week from Charles Spurgeon. He was talking about Abraham building this altar in Canaan. And he said this, he said, the purest and most bracing air for faith to breathe is always on Calvary. See, we have an altar that we go to that's the foundation of our hope in our life, and it's the cross. He said, the air we need to breathe needs to be the air of Calvary. I do not wonder that your faith grows weak when you fail to consider well the tremendous sacrifice with Jesus made for his people. Turn to the annals of the Redeemer's suffering given us to us in the evangelist and bow yourself in prayer before the Lamb of God, blessed to think that you have sh- should have forgotten his death, which is at the center of all of history. Contemplate the wondrous transactions of that substitution once again, and you will find your faith revived. It is not the study of theology. It is not reading good books. I kind of am sad he said that. That's not what revives you. It's not the reading of good books. It is not the searching into the mysteries of prophecy which will bless your soul. It is looking at Christ crucified. That is the essential nourishment of the life of faith and the mind that keeps itself to us. Look at this man, Abraham, already justified, but he looks at the sacrifice all day long until the sun goes down, chasing away the birds of prey as you must drive off all the disturbing thoughts in your mind. So you must also look to the altar. So we want to be renewed. We want to be refreshed. You look at the altar first. That's where they begin. Go to the altar. Make a daily sacrifice of looking morning and evening just to look. A weekly sacrifice of looking to the altar. The yearly celebration of looking to the altar. And then notice they start to lay the foundation in verse 7 through 13. Same, similar time. They have to wait to the right time. And now this is the second month of the second year that they've come back. This is when Passover normally would be. So they wait to when Passover would be, and then they start to establish in verse 7, they start to gather all the different materials for the building of the temple, and it's all these echoes to the places that Solomon went to when he was building it the first time. So they begin to gather the materials, and then they have to appoint the right people. You can look in verse 8, they start to appoint the the Levites and the priests, and they kind of get everybody in their right place and their right role. They start, they now shift. Originally, it was 30 years and up is when you can start. They lower it to 20, just kind of being real and making concessions with who they have and what they can accomplish. And they establish, get the right people. And then they focus on worship, getting worship established. And a couple things just to notice how they describe it. When the builders laid the foundation, verse 10, and the priests and their vestments, they came forward with the trumpets, and the Levites, and the son of Asaph with the cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David the king, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house was laid. So they come together and there's two marks of their worship, it's praise and thanksgiving and those are two slightly different things. Praise, that's the Hebrew word, halel, Hallel lay, yah, yahweh, halel, praise to Yahweh. It's praise. And praise is generally, these are um, a response to who God is and what he's done. You're praising him for who he is and what he's done. It's not really about you. You are not the subject. You're not the object. It's praising him. But then, thanksgiving, thanksgiving is the response to his specific mercies and graces to us. So it's praise and it's thanksgiving. And they do both. And then the anthem that they use to summarize all of it is For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And this would be a responsive song that would be sung at every Sabbath gathering. So every time they would gather in the temple for the full worship of God's people, this would be an anthem that would be sung. You can see one of the full ones in Psalm 136, where they just kind of walk through all the good things that the Lord has done and bringing them out of Egypt is what that song is. And they would respond. Uh, This was the people's response for the Lord, for he is good his steadfast love endures forever. And it happened every time they would gather and sing and celebrate. It reminds me, I don't know where this came from historically. And I think this probably died out when I was about eight. But even before that, I can remember in churches where somebody, it was normally a guest preacher would come in and then they would say, God is good. And then the people would respond, all the time. Some of you grew up in the same place. And then they would respond, all the time. And then he'd say, all the time. And they said, God is good. It's like, well, I, I don't know where that came from, but this is that type of thing It's this beautiful call and response that they would do in every worship. And this is the fundamental Old Testament declaration of who God is He is good. And then you can unpack that, be unpacked. He is compassionate, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And his goodness, his steadfast love is directed towards his people and he'll bless them and keep them and make his face to shine upon them. And that would be the anthem. And then I'm really intrigued here about the emotional range that you see. You know, they shouted with great shout. You know, they weren't, they were, there's proto-Pentecostals, they were shouting. But then it's interesting, that wasn't the only sound. And all week I've been wrestling, and I, I still don't know what to do with this, how to quite understand or what to make of this, because there's a whole group. And it's not just, it's, notice who the group is, they, they weep. So they're all united as one man, with one voice, with one task, and they're going about it, but then they're not all on the same emotional page. One group is incredibly excited, like, this is unbelievable. Our, our home that we've never seen, never heard of, we've only heard stories, and now we're back and we're building it back up, and then a whole other group is sorrowful. They weep. Notice who it is. It's, it's the leaders. The people who are supposed to be leading the project. It's the priests, the Levites, the heads of the father's house, and then the old men who had seen the old temple. And then you think about it, because you're kind of wrestling, all right, is this just undue discouragement? or is this just reality? It's just not like, it's not going to be as good. Like we remember the old. Now, how much time had been passed? You know, time, it's been 50 years since the temple was destroyed. And the older I get, the shorter amount of time 50 years is. I think at one time I think, oh, 50 years, like nobody would even be alive. But then you think about, all right, just things that happened 50 years ago. You know, 50 years ago was when the Watergate scandal first broke out. 50 years ago, there was these two buildings in New York where they cut the ribbon on called the World Trade Center. I heard recently a New York guy saying that the greatest year of his life was the year that the, um, the, the Knicks won the NBA Finals, and then in that September, it was in September, the, the Mets were 12 and a half games out of the, or the from uh, behind, and they ended up winning the pennant. And he so said, that was the greatest year of my life. And that was 50 years ago. And so, and so it wasn't that long ago. And then they see what's happening, and then they, they weep and just wonder, Prophet Haggai comes in to speak to them and he comes in in chapter two and he says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, how do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, uh, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the land, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord, according to the covenant that I made when you came out of Egypt. My spirit is with you. Do not be afraid. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yes, once more, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will flow in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And in this place, I will give you peace. And so he promises something, even though it looks so impressive now, something is coming that you can't even imagine. This temple, this visible sign of God's presence among his people, you have no idea the way his presence is going to come soon. And in many ways for them, the battle, because they lay the foundation right now and it's going to take them 20 years to finish this building project. So if you walk into any room in your house and there's things that have been left undone for the last year and a half, you can just look at your wife and say, hey, I mean, I got, like, they're 20 years behind, so we got plenty of time to finish this. It's going to take them 20 years to finish the project. And the great battle, the challenge for that entire time is to believe with all of their soul, what they're saying with their mouth in verse 11, to believe that God is good and he is steadfast. And because he is steadfast, we will be steadfast in the good he's called us to do. Because the good he's called them to do, they are about to get hit from every angle. Political attack, slander, conflict, setback, drought, everything you can imagine is coming. And the great challenge is can we keep going and doing this good thing he's called us to do? So how can they do it? This is why it was so important to establish the altar, to go to the altar. This is why it's so important because at the altar, you look in three different directions. You look back... To what God has done, you look up to where he is now, and then you look forward to what he's calling you to do. And every aspect of worship is meant to have an element to strengthen you in all three directions. So when we sing, do you realize when we sing, first we can look back and we're joining in the songs of the faithful that have been sung to God on the Lord's day for at least 3,000 years. You're joining with a historically long chorus that's celebrating his mercy and his goodness and his faithfulness. And the beauty is that is not just something that's happened in the past. What's happening right now, and this is the point of the book of Hebrews, that the ascended Christ is actually in heaven as our great high priest, and he is the primary worship leader. And every time God's people gather, he is the one who's conducting them into worship. He is the grand conductor who is allowing each little group to play their one little note in the the creation-wide symphony of celebrating his praise. And so even today his praises has have already been sung in Japanese and in Swahili and in hundreds of different verses or languages and then we get to come in in our little chorus of English in this little place and join with all of the people in this hemisphere singing his praises. And then it's a call to what's coming because one day his voice will rip through all of creation and the dead will rise to meet him and we will then sing for joy as we celebrate his presence. And when we pray, we look back knowing that we're praying to the one who has already did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give you all things? So that encourages you in the now. And then you look forward as you know from Revelation that he's keeping all of your prayers. They're like incense in his heavenly throne room. And then when we (laughs) gather to hear his word, we are looking back to see his faithfulness and his truth that's been unpacked all throughout history. And then it's our food that's feeding us now. And then we wait for its ultimate fulfillment. When we give our tithes, our offerings, we're remembering of responding in gratitude to the grace that has been given to his people all throughout the ages And then we look to him today, and then we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And then every week when we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what do we do? First, we're looking back, we're remembering, and we're believing that Jesus's death has fully paid the penalty for all of my sins. And every time we eat and drink, we're proclaiming his death and his victory over sin, death, and the grave. But then we look at him today because it's a it's it's meant to be a little energetic, encouraging kind of foretaste or appetizer just to keep going to remind us that in his word, by his spirit, we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes out from his mouth. And that in his spirit is the life giving refreshment to our souls. And then we look ahead as we think about the day. When he told his disciples, I will not drink of that cup again until you are with me in my father's house. So even as we drink it now, we know that he's not because he's waiting for the full company of his people to come into his presence to really celebrate. So each week we take communion and we're going back to how we uh, used to do it before COVID. We're going to have three different stations, two in the front, two in the back. You can kind of begin at the front and you can uh, come. You'll take one of the, the pieces of bread, uh, the wafer, you'll take it and you'll dip and you'll partake. There's, uh, if you need gluten-free, there's a, some gluten-free uh, bread in the back that Doug and Mikey will have. But Robin Rosemary, you come, Cynthia, you come. And then once we're in place, you can begin.